On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we all know that Roll Up the Rim to Win is a massive success as a promotion for Tim Hortons, but is it time to change it? Do we need, because of the environment and other considerations, do we need, does Tim Hortons need to change things up a bit? We'll talk about that one. Also, minor sports parents. There was a story this week, not exactly accurate, a little bit overblown. Nonetheless, it, it created a conversation. It started a conversation again about minor sports parents. We know what the stereotype is. We know that's sometimes true. Why is that the case? Why do some parents lose their minds when they watch their kids' sports? Talk to an author of a book who's written about that. All that coming up here on the podcast. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You know what today is? Today is the beginning of Roll Up the Rim to Win. Everybody does it. Everybody knows it. Probably by the time this promotion ends with, you know what, the coffee chain that started here. You know what I'm talking about, right, Tim Hortons? Uh, By the time this is done, I don't even know when it goes to. I think it's a month. I'm guessing that most of you will at least once have rolled up a rim. It is a hugely successful promotion. 33 years now. This is the 33rd year, apparently, for this. And I don't know who came up with the concept, but that person should have got a bonus once upon a time because they came up with a really, really clever idea. However, that said, times do change. 33 years is a long time, and some people are now saying, you know what, it is time for this to be tweaked. Let me bring in a favorite of ours. Uh, He is a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. He is the one man who can make the food business very interesting. His name is Sylvain Charlebois, and he joins us, I think, just off a plane, hopefully not flying through the ice storm today. (laughs) No, I'm in beautiful Manitoba today at minus 20. That is, uh, that. well, I don't know what's worse, here or there. Here, it's just we're covered in a thick layer of ice. It looks like the whole city is a Krispy Kreme glazed donut. But there well, is cold. way over to Manitoba, I was actually in Toronto, and it wasn't pretty, uh, absolutely. But at minus 20, <laughs> you got to drink your Tim Hortons coffee pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> or just pour it down the back of your shirt to stay warm. Uh, Sylvain, <laughs> when, we, when this topic comes up and we're talking about a change to the concept of roll up the rim to win. Again, it's not the concept of this promotion. I I was trying to think today, before we get to what the change is, I was trying to think today of another food company's promotion, uh, marketing slogan, anything like that, that has been as successful. I can't think of another one in this country that we drop into our conversation sometimes and it's just become part of the discussion. I think roll up the rim to win has been a terrific thing for them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, everyone remembers the name, uh, the physicality of the campaign with cups, and you get to roll the rim, you, you get to actually interact with people in the restaurant. Uh, the, it's it's really uh, a campaign that has uh, been quite successful since 1986, and uh, they actually produce over 300 million cups to, to support wow. this campaign. So very... Very successful, and it's been around for for a long time. But a big part of the success of it, and you touch on it, there is something to be said about the tactile experience, right? About the actually rolling up that rim. I mean, as much as maybe rolling up a rim sounds like a stupid thing to be excited about, there is something to that, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's the intrigue. You finish your cup, you're with your buddies, your friends, your family, and and of course, you get to the big reveal, and uh, when you look at the odds, 
I mean, you have a one chance uh, out of six to actually win anything uh, from a cup of coffee to uh, to a car, uh, some money, of course, uh, odds to uh, to win the for you to win a car or money are, are much lower, but still there's been a lot of people who have won uh, in the past and uh, have redeemed prizes and they've stuck around the restaurant and uh, ate some more, drank some more. So it really it has become a, uh, a campaign that generated a lot of extra revenues for, uh, for, for Tim Hortons, and it has worked. Well, once upon a time, I actually thought I won a motorhome when I rolled up the rim to win, but it said win a bagel. Um, boom! I'll, I'll be here all week. Try the veal, um, but it, so, but that because of that, when we talk about the changes and and the changes, really, the idea for the changes that some people are having is because when you mentioned three hundred million cups, that is a lot of garbage. That's a lot of cups that are being thrown out, right? I mean, that that that's a is there uh, that has to put Tim Hortons, and I'm not blaming Tim Hortons; they're selling a product, but that has to put them up there as far as creating the most material that goes into the garbage. Oh, absolutely. In fact, there was a report uh, that was published about six months ago um, actually pointing at this particular problem. Uh, It was one group that actually went out uh, and visited several seashores in Canada, and they they, they collected trash, and they actually narrowed the trash down to five companies, Nestle, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and, of course, Tim Hortons. And so it really, this phenomena of trash and plastic and, and packaging uh, is forcing companies to think about the entire life cycle of their product. Uh, and and this, is, this is something we call the circular economy. If you sell a product with your brand on it to a customer, you've got to somewhat be partially responsible for what actually happens to that product beyond uh, the borders of your own business. Uh, so if it ends up in the environment with your name on it, um, it really, people are starting to link uh, the consumer to the brand and the brand to the company, and, and people are starting to expect the company to do something about it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking Tim Hortons. We're talking roll up the rim to win with Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, who is mainlining Tim Hortons right now in freezing cold Manitoba. Um, there are people, just before the break, we were talking about this. There are people out there now who are starting petitions, online petitions, and, and getting a lot of signatures, correct, to, to try and get something done about all this garbage that's being created? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been happening for a few years now. Every Every year you hear a group or an individual uh, running a campaign uh, uh, soliciting signatures to, to force uh, Tim Hortons' hands uh, or Restaurant Brands International, which is the holding um, uh, under, uh, under Tim Hortons. Uh, but this year is, is a bit different. Uh, you actually saw uh, three, three school kids basically out of uh, Calgary uh, garnering over a hundred thousand signatures, uh, asking Tim Hortons to actually digitize their roll up the rim to win campaign, and uh, and they've been actually quite successful in getting the word out. In fact, uh, I actually heard about it and wrote about it, and uh, I was intrigued. And of course, more and more people are are, are sensitive to to that, those kinds of campaigns because they know. There's an issue, and of course, Tim Hortons being a symbol, 
uh, a huge company selling a lot of coffee. Uh, and, of course, uh, Starbucks just made an announcement about packaging recently. And so people are looking at Tim Hortons and, see, and asking, well, what, what do you have in mind? What do you want to do? Well, and companies today, not just food companies, I mean, companies all over the place are being, are becoming highly aware of these social and justice issues because they understand that if for millennials and younger people than that, I mean, they can have a huge impact. That's something of importance to them. And especially, I would think, Sylvain, I would think for Tim Hortons, which how long ago was it now? Less than a year ago that they found themselves in the, somehow became the whipping company for that minimum wage dispute in Ontario. And somehow Tim Hortons becomes the company that is singled out and pointed to, uh, I would think that they, of all companies, would be highly sensitive now to make sure they don't end up once again under the spotlight as doing something that a group of people in the community don't agree with. Yeah, but it's hard to replicate the physicality of the campaign, which is roll up the rim to win. That's the that's the challenge they face. It's similar to the grocers, uh, for years, they didn't want to uh, digitize their business. They didn't want people to buy food online because they wanted to comp- They didn't want to compromise foot traffic. Because once you're in that store, they can get you through their smells, colors, uh, taste, anything, and they'll get you in false buy. With Tim Hortons, it's the same thing. How do you replicate that uh, with an app or uh, on on a smartphone? It's it's not easy. It's not the same thing. The Mortons, the roll up the rim to win campaign is not just about giving prizes. It's also about community, getting people together, getting people excited about, you know, a free donut. I guess it gets people excited. Well, I, here's the tricky part that I really don't get about how, because my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the people who are behind this, the high school kids, and good for them for doing what they're passionate about, but their idea is, as you say, they want to digitize this or do something online where you have to, I guess, have a number on your cup or something, and then you go online and type in the number and see if you win. But people are still going to be buying coffee and it may not be 300 million. It may be 280 million. They may sell extra coffees, but those cups are still going to be used. So my question is, how much do you actually stop if you were to digitize roll up the rim? Well, so their argument is that they actually would want people to be allowed to, uh, to uh, come in with reusable cups. So you wouldn't have the cups, uh, the paper cups being used in the plastic lids that's the argument that they're making. Essentially, they're aiming uh, for, uh, uh, well, less cups to be used during the campaign. But the bottom line is that Tim Horton is out there to make money, and it, they won't make a change uh, unless they know for sure mm. uh, they're about to lose money because millennials and the Generation Z are about to boycott Tim Horton just because uh, while well, they're still selling paper cups and lids. So we're, we're really at the crossroads here, and uh, perhaps Tim Hortons at some point will we'll find some sort of solution, a hybrid solution perhaps. A couple more things here. Uh, is You mentioned the millennials. We mentioned the millennials. Weird question, but is Tim Hortons a millennial company? Because I, I think of millennials and those younger seem to be, seem to be anyway, more interested in going to the niche coffee, hand-pressed $5 a cup coffee places rather than Tim Hortons. It, does Tim Hortons worry, in other words, about what millennials or Generation Z think, or do they say, no, this is our market of those 30 and over or whatever, and they like it? 
I think that I means the, the food demand is is much more fragmented as a result of of consumers being very curious, especially the younger ones. And so obviously, a lot of millennials and and people in the generation Z, the younger folks, are curious. They want to try different things, and and they're actually in favor of of the environment and things like that. And in fact, they actually are willing to pay a premium uh, for the environment. Uh, but over time, I mean, food costs money, and at some point, uh, if you if 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 a solution is provided to you that is convenient, you'll go after it. And Tim Hortons actually hop, offers these things. So once in a while, you shouldn't be surprised to see millennials there. But obviously, their demographics is getting older, Tim Hortons, and, and other companies are attracting the younger generations. And I, if I were Tim Hortons, I would take note of that. Sylvain Charlebois, I, uh, I would encourage you to get some coffee of some kind just to keep yourself alive out there in Manitoba. I <laughs> uh, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a story that uh, you probably caught wind of one way or another over the last day or so. It was all over the place, well covered. And it was a story that said on Sunday afternoon at a hockey rink in Simcoe after a peewee hockey game, 30 hockey parents got into a brawl in the lobby of this arena. Now, the truth seems to be, I did some work on this yesterday for The Spectator, the truth seems to be that the story was highly exaggerated, that there were a couple parents, maybe three or four, who were maybe yelling a little bit at each other, but there was no physical brawl. Nonetheless, nonetheless, that doesn't seem to me to really be the point. We're going to, if we can believe that these parents didn't do this, they get a pass on this. But the fact that we... You, I, everyone, so easily, so willingly were, were able to believe this story, that it didn't seem ridiculous to us, to me says something. To me, it says something about the bed that hockey, baseball, basketball, all these parents have made, that we are now open to willingly believing that this really could have happened. I want to bring on Todd Miller. He is the former president of Hockey Calgary. Uh, but he also is the author of a book called Moron, the behind-the-scenes story of minor hockey. He joins us now. Todd, thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, based, I'm, let me go from what I was just saying a moment ago. Based on your experience, and I think I know the answer already, but I'm going to ask you. Based on your experience, if you had heard a report of 30 parents brawling at a peewee game, would it have been your inclination at first blush to say, nah, there's there's no way, that's ridiculous, that would never happen, or would you have probably said, yeah, you know, I could see that happening? Yeah, it's unfortunate that uh, my reaction would have been, yeah, I could see that happening based on my experience as uh, former you know, past president of minor hockey in Calgary and still being an official. I, uh, unfortunately, I've heard way too many stories, and I have no record of saying nothing will surprise me. Uh, you've seen it up close then? Maybe oh, not this exact thing, but something along these lines. Yeah, I know. We I, again, it's unfortunate, as uh, you know. We reference my book. I, you know, I, I make reference to the different you know scenarios that have occurred over you know again my period in, in hockey and minor hockey uh, specifically, and uh, you know they've been they've been many and uh, with a lot of variety, uh, ranging from you know parents uh, literally arguing and in some cases getting into fisticuffs, if you will. Uh, all the way to really abusive behavior to young officials. 
And just before we carry on, uh, I, I think it is worth pointing out that uh, lest anyone think that we are just picking on hockey parents or that somehow Zamboni fumes are the thing that cause people to lose their minds. Um, if you have been at a baseball diamond or a soccer field or a football field or a basketball court or a tennis court or anywhere that kids play, you're going to come across this. And I mean, I, there's even a show on, I think, A&E or TLC or something of insane dance parents so uh, in dance so i mean todd i mean this is not just a hockey thing this is sports parents no absolutely scott good great clarification and as a matter of fact i've had many many people write to me uh after reading the book or or hearing the stories that that i've shared over my uh, period of time and said you know listen todd you could literally take your title and say more on the behind the scenes story of an insert sport uh uh, you know, it, it resonates uh, so much with, uh, you know, I guess adult, what I would call adult behavior inside of minor sports. Broadest possible question. You have written about this. You've seen it. You've talked about it. Why is this the case? Yeah, you know, that's the, that is the million dollar question. Uh, it seems to me that through all of the dialogue and all the discussions that I've had and, you know, firsthand experience, uh, uh, you know, by no means am I, uh, you know, a professional in terms of psychology, but the, there does seem to be a correlation to, you know, parenting and and children. Uh, you know, perhaps it's the, you know, living vicariously through your your child, uh, wanting to see your children succeed, getting really really tied up in, uh, you know, your child's success and being perceived that the success is the escalation of. Uh, uh, greatness in sport, and suddenly you just get you know so wrapped up in that that you seem to you know just lose some common sense behavior that I know in talking with parents when when they come to me a, a hearing for example, and we describe the behavior that they engaged in at a hockey game or an arena or you know wherever uh, that was you know abusive or disruptive, they in every case will turn to us and say, "I can't believe I did that." Do most people, when those things come up, do most people acknowledge the behavior or do a lot of them say, I didn't even realize it was that bad? You know, as a general rule, it's been my experience that they acknowledge it after the fact. Uh, and, you know, and obviously what's happening is these days is social media and uh, everyone's got a camera. So it's pretty hard to deny some of the behavior that we're now seeing. I mean, perhaps, you know, 20 years ago, uh, you know, people would, you know, it, you just didn't have the technology around you. It's, it's blatant now. You see it all over the place, which, by the way, I, I think is a great thing because I think the only way the path through this is to continue to talk about it. So I'm glad to hear that you're talking about it today with your listeners uh, for, for all of us as adults to just become more and more aware of this behavior. And that, that to me, is the path of, uh, of, of you know, solving the problem. Let's we, Todd, let's take a minute or two here and just go through, because there are a number of theories. I, I don't know which one is true. Maybe it's a combination, but let's go through some of these theories of why, it, things that have been suggested for the reasons why when parents lose their minds at kids' sports events, that it happens. You mentioned living vicariously, um, w- whether it's that or, as you say, that somehow this is carrying on the the parents, that, that somehow your kid being good in sports shows that you're an excellent breeder or something. I mean, I'm not really sure what, what that is, but that is absolutely the case. In some cases, I would think that some parents see their child on the ice and their ability is a reflection of them somehow. And if they're really good, that means you have great genes, I guess. Well, perhaps you're a wonderful parent or, or you know, perhaps, uh, I, mean, I don't know, maybe ego takes over. And, uh, uh, you know, I think there's a bunch of, uh, you know, elements that come with that in terms of the title of living vicariously through your child. 
Uh, you know, the other one, Scott, that I have seen that is uh, very powerful, and that is along the lines of safety. Uh, so I've seen, uh, which, you know, I can understand as well, where, you know, uh, something happens to your child on the ice or in sport, uh, you know, where, you know, again, you know, people are going to get, uh, ch- children are going to get injured in a, in a contact sport. And, and even, even in the leagues where there's no body checking, there's still contact and you're on ice for, you know, for that period of time on, you know, blades and, you know, there's going to be accidents and mishaps. And, and I've seen parents, uh, you know, kind of called loser marbles uh, over, over injuries on the ice, which again, I think, you know, that one uh, is another one that's very, very, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, parents after the game having fisticuffs or, you know, fights or what have you. Uh, you know, I've seen that firsthand where now mom or dad are going to take it into their own hands uh, against the other other parents uh, because little Johnny got hurt by uh, by Bobby. Yeah, and that I was I was calling that one the helicopter parent theory, where you just you're going to put the bubble wrap on your kids, and in hockey or some other sport where you can't because they are out on the field or the diamond or the court or the ice or whatever, uh, you can't protect them at that moment necessarily. So you can do it afterwards. You can get back at someone afterwards. No, that's great. And your helicopter comment is uh, very very relevant for sure. The third one that I've heard a lot, and I actually subscribe to this one. I think in a lot of cases, this one makes an awful lot of sense to me. I don't, not, not exclusively, but it's the investment theory. And that is, if you're going to put your kid in rep sports, in, in, in any kind of sports, and you are going to be paying all that money and putting all that time commitment in and sp- paying for extra skating and extra shooting and extra whatever, it's no longer a pastime or a recreation for your child. It's an investment into them. No, that's an excellent one. And, and, and quite frankly, all three of these are referenced in the book. Uh, and it, and it, it's just the escalating cost of uh, minor sports in general, but certainly hockey and infrastructure comes into play as well. But uh, I, I think you're spot on. Uh, the investment, uh, the fact that uh, parents are becoming, and I, and I believe that this is parents, this is not kids uh, driving the behavior of uh, spring hockey, summer hockey, fall hockey. I mean, Hockey um, all all year round. I mean, there's been lots of great authors and, and uh, ex NHLers, specifically Bobby Orr, speaks to this in, in volumes about that you shouldn't be doing this, mom and dad. And and yet uh, parents just seem to be thinking, boy, if I just keep spending more money, get them the best sticks, the best uh, skates, and put them through you know ten more hockey schools, then my investment will pay off. And look, I, I think every one of your listeners listening to that comment would say, well, that's ridiculous. And I think the sanity of that. Uh, is very true. It, it, it's ridiculous behavior, yet uh, we're seeing that happen all too often. I, I was talking to a, a NBA player from Hamilton on the weekend. A lovely kid. Uh, this is not a shot at him at all. He's a great kid. He's a really nice guy. Uh, but because of the business that he is now in, he made the NBA, he's being paid $4.5 million this year as a rookie. Uh, I can see a lot of parents, whether it's that in the NBA or hockey, that to me, I can get why some parents would think, you know what, if I invest in my kid, maybe they make the NHL and look how much money they can make. We just saw Austin Matthews here in this area sign for $11.5 million a year yesterday. Why would you not put that money into your kid if they've got any talent whatsoever? Because look at how rich they could be a few years down the road. Yeah, no, I was going to say the Austin Matthews, uh, obviously, you know, that, that contract that was just signed. Uh, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I would encourage, uh, you know, all parents, uh, and I went through it as well, to be able to, you know, take yourself back from that for a minute and say, okay, what, what percentage, what are the odds? Like, let's, let's be real about this for a minute. And, you know, it, it is less than a, uh, a percentage point of uh, the amount of kids 
that are actually going to take their career anywhere. And forget the NHL for a second, because quite frankly, you know, I think at best you could hope for an elite status child to uh, uh, get into an Ivy League school. Uh, and even that, you're still talking of less than a percentage of the amount of kids that are playing the game. So at the end of the day, most of us that are playing this game are going to move on to recreational hockey or affectionately called beer league. And, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that's the best that, we're, that we can hope for. And if you start focusing in on all the great things in minor sports, not just hockey, you know, all of those life lessons that we're, we're all applying today in whatever our, our profession is today, right? You know, our, our, our camaraderie, our team, uh, our, our team elements, our leadership skills, uh, uh, you know, that's where we're all headed, uh, the vast majority of us, except for this very small elite minority. And I think if parents, you know, start focusing in on that, uh, you know, I think we're going to be down a better path. Let me ask you one more thing about this investment idea. Sports, you mentioned it a second ago, minor sports, all minor sports now. I mean, even soccer, and you think about soccer, you know, it's got you need a pair of cleats, maybe not even that, and the league will provide you with a ball and a shirt. I mean, literally, the actual necessities of soccer, the reason it's so popular in so many poor countries in the world is because you need no equipment, and yet here... Even soccer has become an incredibly expensive sport to play. If we were to somehow find a way to pull way back on the costs of minor sports, do you believe that that would have an impact on pulling back the intensity of the parents as well? Well, I, I, I think it would. Uh, and obviously, we're just a hypothetical situation because you know we have to get there in terms of pulling back costs. But if you, if if the first comment holds true in that. Parents are suddenly looking at this as, boy, I've spent so much money. My my son or daughter better do they better excel. So that intensifies the uh, the whole emotional impact in the game, which is creating some of this, you know, unbelievable uh, erotic behavior, this uh, disrespectful behavior. That you know, it's it's, it's it's ludicrous. So I think you know, I, absolutely, we would get to a place where, uh, you know, if we could control the costs, uh, you know, I think we'd have a, a, a better uh, better connection with all sports, not just hockey. Here's where things get very confusing for me, uh, and I'm, I'm not claiming to be the smartest guy on the planet, and so I'm looking at this from a, a, a big-picture scenario, and the same parents who would lose their minds at a baseball diamond or a soccer field or a hockey rink or anything else, I, have, I don't recall ever seeing any of them, and I've seen those parents before, I don't recall ever seeing them do the same thing in other competitive settings. I mean, I've yet to see a parent stand up in the middle of a a school awards assembly when the science or geography awards are being given out and scream at a teacher because their kid didn't get the science or geography award. And I'm trying to figure out why not. Like, what is it about this sports environment that allows people to feel like that is a place where you can do that, but you would never, if your kid wasn't chosen as the lead in the school play, you would never stand up in the middle of the play and scream that my kid should have been the doing that part. It's it's a, it's just it seems like it's two different worlds and two different responses. Well, I could certainly speak to that from a hockey perspective, and and uh, and we witnessed that you know all too often where you know, normal operating you know individuals or in other words the behavior that you're saying that you clearly would not see at the school play or what have you the the award ceremony people wouldn't behave that way yet. Those same individuals walking into a ice ice rink and you know stand, sitting behind the glass or you know beside the glass, not on the ice. Obviously, their behavior suddenly changed. And you know, I'm talking about very respectful respectful individuals that uh, you saw this 
crazy behavior suddenly materialized, and I think it's for all the reasons that we've been talking about, and specifically in hockey, perhaps it's the pastime, you know, and I think that's another, there's another element in there that uh, we're Canadians, and suddenly uh, this is supposed to be our game, and, and therefore my son or daughter is going to participate in our game and going to be exceptional at it, uh, uh, you know, when they're on the ice. Because there are parents who are every bit as competitive academically as there are parents who are competitive athletically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so you would expect that this would pop up in schools at at times, and maybe if I had a teacher on, they would say, "Oh, yeah, you're just not seeing it." But as soon as a parent comes in for parent teacher, I get reamed out all the time. I don't know. Maybe that's the case, but you you don't see it manifest in the same way. Yeah, that could be the case. Um, you know, and again, I would what I would say is that in the hockey rink, suddenly because maybe maybe it's the uh, the attraction of other people behaving this way, so therefore. You know, it's okay for me to behave that way. Mm. And having said all that, Scott, I, I do think that um, minor hockey, as much as we're talking about an issue that, uh, you know, materialized in peewee hockey, and, and I've certainly, I, I'm still roughing uh, midget and junior hockey, so I still see some behaviors. Uh, having said that, I think the movement towards, um, you know, remedying this situation, fixing this situation, you know, starting to modify behaviors, I think we're on the right path. Are they working? Well, I, I've, you know, again, I don't have any current data that would tell you, you know, from a metric perspective, it's, you know, you know, their incidents are down. Um, I actually think that they're being profiled more now than ever because of, as I said, social media and all of the devices that are available. So we're talking about it more and more. I certainly am aware of lots of measures being put in place with minor hockey, in particular Hockey Canada, with, you know, respect and sport programs. And, and that's all proactive to educate parents on what do I do? And I've often heard from parents that, Boy, when I see crazy behavior, I don't know what to do. I'm afraid to step in. So mm. I think the educational component is important for us all to remember in this uh, discussion as well. Here's my theory, and you can tell me that my theory is ridiculous, but here is my idea for how you fix it. Rather than having lots and lots and lots of money spent on educational programs that may or may not work, you put that money into closed-circuit high-definition cameras in the arenas, and whenever a parent behaves like an idiot, you post it online so that everybody sees it, and they are totally embarrassed, you would hope, and maybe they don't do it again, or at least other parents won't because they realize they're going to be having their behavior shown to the public and they're going to look like an idiot. Well, perhaps the right-of-center guy in me would uh, be right there with you, um, <laughs> although I would I would share with you that <laughs> I think we, we, we have literally given that same power to all the parents in the building uh, to pull out their phones and videotape uh, the behavior. And uh, we could encourage them all to, 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 to make their postings live and maybe we get the same result. It would be interesting. You know what would happen is the parent who had their picture put up online would end up going over and punching the other one in the face, though, and we'd have <laughs> it would be it would exacerbate the problem, but it would certainly be interesting. Uh, Todd Miller, his book is called be a moron behind the the behind the scenes story of minor hockey. If you if this is a topic that interests you and you want to hear more about it, go pick up that book. I'm sure is it on is it available at uh, bookstores near us? Yeah, you know the the, the best place to, that I would direct you to right now is Amazon. You can get you can download uh, from Amazon.ca uh, chapters uh, and Indigo also carry it. But uh, certainly the the best place, the quickest place these days is Amazon.ca. Todd, really really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much for having me, Scott, and uh, good luck to you with this discussion. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
We're going to take a few minutes here and revisit a topic that we talked about last week. I had no intention of going back and talking about this again. I did not mean to. And yet sometimes things happen that require you to go back and talk about things again. And I know uh, that this was a topic that was that, that you, the listeners, had a lot of interest in because we got a lot of comments when we opened the lines. And I'm going to open the lines again today. But last week, you may recall that we were chatting about a kid. I think he was, I don't know, 17, 18, whatever his age was. Can't remember. A young kid, 20 maybe. Uh, who was caught when he was driving 205 kilometers or 207 kilometers an hour in a sports car on the 407. And he got stopped and he got charged with stunt driving, which is the charge that is for any, you can be charged with stunt driving if you're going 50 kilometers an hour over the limit or more. Well, he was 107 over the speed limit, if I have my number right. It was 105, 107, something like that. Anyway, and we were chatting about the fact that it was around the same time, it was maybe on the same day that he was doing this, that the driver of the truck in Humboldt was having his sentencing hearing where the crown attorney out there was arguing for a 10-year prison sentence for that driver to go away. And at the time, and we're going to bring this up again, I made the case, I made the point, maybe not the case, I tried to make the case, uh, but I, I made the point that the driver in Humboldt, while certainly responsible for his behavior and while certainly responsible for his actions behind the wheel of the truck, what we heard in that sentencing was that there was a tarpaulin, a tarp on the back of the truck that was flapping around and he was being distracted by this and didn't pay close enough attention and blew through the stop sign in Saskatchewan and hit the Humboldt Broncos bus. You know the story. You, of course, you know the story. But the point was... The driver of that truck, while responsible, while culpable for his actions, didn't set about to do something that was malicious, didn't set about to do something that would hurt people. He did hurt people. Ultimately, people died. 16 people died. 13 were injured. Now, not, that was in one accident, right? That was one bad decision that led to all those deaths and injuries. It's a horrible situation. But we discussed the fact that I'm discussing it again right now. That guy, I, I have some degree of sympathy for because, as one of the callers that night that we had on the air said, and I agreed with it, who among us has not had a moment of lack of concentration on the road that has caused us to maybe cross the center lane for a second or go through a stop sign or a red light? Who among us hasn't done something when we're driving that, oh, but for the grace of God, that could have been us. We all, we, we've all had those. If you've driven for any length of time, that has been your experience. That's been my experience. I can tell you, all of us, unless you are somehow unique, we've all done something behind the wheel of the car that thankfully, thankfully, Nobody was hurt. Nobody died. There was no accident because it just didn't turn out that anybody was in the path of us. So I look at this guy in Humboldt. I am not suggesting, I want to make it clear. I'm not suggesting he should walk. I'm not suggesting he should have the parents of the 
dead people apologize to him for any, no, no, he is responsible for his behavior behind the wheel of that truck and he should be serving time. He should be paying for that error that he made because it had massive consequences. However, let me come to what we're talking about again today. Last week we were talking about this and I said, yeah, but the kid who was driving 207 kilometers an hour, he's going to get a fine. He's probably going to get a fine. He's going to lose some demerit points. He may have his insurance go up. But he was doing something that he knew darn well. He knew darn well that he was driving like an idiot. And it was only by good fortune that nobody got in his way, that nobody changed lanes in front of him, that nothing happened, that he didn't kill someone. He knew he was driving like that. And unlike the driver in Humboldt, who had what, by by the very definition, it sounds like, of an accident, a tragic accident, but an accident, this guy was being a moron. Well, now... On Monday night, Mississauga police, I don't know what's in the water in Mississauga, because this is where all these things seem to happen. Apparently, all the lunatics in the world are driving in Mississauga. But a 19-year-old is now facing stunt driving charges after an Audi was caught going, ready for this, 246 kilometers an hour. 246 kilometers an hour. On Highway 403 near Aaron Mills Parkway. Here's the part of this, and this is why I'm bringing this up again, and this is the part of this that drives me insane. It makes me enraged when I hear this kind of thing. Here's a quote from the story. Police say it's too early to determine whether the driver will face criminal charges. Police say it's too early to determine whether the driver will face criminal charges. How is it possible that a driver who has an accident, unintentional, lack of attention, his fault, but an accident. How is it possible that a driver that has an accident could be going to jail for 10 years because he had the misfortune of losing focus and losing concentration at the moment somebody else, in this case a team bus, was in his way? And a kid can go 246 kilometers an hour by all the good graces and good fortune of everything in the planet doesn't have someone cut in front of him or get in the way so there's no accident and nobody dies. And police can't even decide if they're going to lay criminal charges because it's such a gray area. How is this possible? And I argued last week and I'm going to argue it again today and I want to hear from you. How is it we don't penalize people for their behavior instead of the consequences. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're picking up where we left off last week. Hadn't intended to do this. And then the story comes out that a 19-year-old kid got pulled over on Monday night driving 246 kilometers an hour on Highway 403 near Aaron Mills Parkway in Mississauga. But police are unsure yet because it's too early to determine if he's going to face criminal charges. He's been charged with, with stunt driving. That's a provincial offenses thing. Uh, you can get a fine of up to 10,000 bucks. I'm sure he'll probably get the full 10,000 bucks and that's going to sting. There's no question. $10,000 is $10,000 and he'll get demerit points taken off and he has a sh- uh, some kind of license suspension and he could go to jail, although nobody really ever does. And his insurance rates will probably go up. I mean, he's not going to get off with nothing. But how do you possibly drive like that knowing, 
Because unless you are having a stroke behind the wheel of the car and your foot is clenched down on the pedal, uh, then okay. But you know that when you're driving like that, you are putting everyone else's life at risk. How do we possibly allow no criminal, not necessarily have a criminal charge for this when an accident that hurts somebody leads to a criminal charge? It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me. I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Let me put it another way, and then I'm going to go to the lines. Let me put it another way. If you, now I'm not encouraging anybody to do any of these things, but if you got into a fight with somebody and you punch them in the face and they fall down and hit their head on the floor or on a curb or something else and die, at the very least, you're going to be charged with manslaughter. It's a criminal charge. And based on a manslaughter charge, you could go to jail for, I think it's up to, well, you could probably go for, I don't know, I think it's 10 years, maybe more. But the fact is, you if you punch someone with without the intent to necessarily off them, without wanting to kill them, you're just in a fight, you could face incredibly serious charges and a serious jail time, which is probably more than if you went up and did something intentional to someone with a weapon. But if they lived, if they were okay. So your intent is to do more damage in the one case, and you would end up with a lesser sentence than if you accidentally did more damage than you thought based on your actions. You shouldn't have done it, but do you get what I'm saying? This doesn't, we shouldn't be running a justice system and a judicial process on the result. I'm going back to that point. The result should be part of the reason, part of the decision, not the reason we give a penalty. Frank is on the line. Frank, how are you tonight? I'm, I'm very well, thanks, uh, Scott. I didn't hear your initial program on this, and so I'm just taking it from what you're just saying right now. But I, I, I'm going to change your question a bit here, and I, I think you should get a hold of a lawyer on this. Um, how, what is a criminal? Like a criminal is somebody who has the intent to commit a crime, Okay. So, no, well, not not necessarily. You can have uh, well, you can uh, have criminal. Go ahead, sorry. Uh, no, th- largely that's the case. Although you can be um, so, um, I'm trying to think of the word right now. Where where you're you should have known what would have happened, and you could also negligence, criminal negligence. You could have where you're not meaning to, but by all accounts, you should have known that that could be something that would go wrong. And that's where I find this should fall into something along those lines. Okay, wait a minute. You just said something there. Criminal negligence. Now, you, you started this off by saying criminal charges, but criminal negligence is another package in itself. So I'm going to lean with you on that one. But as far as compa- like the other example you gave of a guy punching a guy in the face, but you're, harm- you're deliberately harming a person. When you're driving on that highway at that rate, you're, you're, you're harmed to yourself until you hit somebody. And matter of fact, if there's nobody else around... I mean, he got off. But I, first of all, just, just go one step further on here. Before anything, he should be uh, sustained from having his driver's license for a good due time. So if well, I, pro- I would argue forever. But again, Frank... Oh, my, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd say so. If hmm. My point in this one is this. Had he had the misfortune of someone getting in his way when he's driving 246 kilometers an hour, someone hmm. is going to be seriously hurt or die. And if that happens, he is going to be charged criminally like the driver in Humboldt, and he probably hmm. will go to jail. The only reason he's not is because nobody happened to be in his path. That means by good fortune, nothing, the only thing separating him from jail is not his abilities as a driver. It's not his planning. It's not his good planning. It's luck. 
Okay, let's fast forward just a bit. I know you got a lot of time, uh, not too much time here. Listen, he learned a lesson there, we hope. If he hasn't learned a lesson, he, like you said, uh, uh, taking his license out for life. I mean, that's a good uh, one. I'd like to get a judge to, to stand up to that if that was the case. But uh, the comparison of the Humboldt crash and that one, uh, too far-fetched. Frank, yeah. listen, i got to run. i got to get one more yeah, in here, but you. thank you for the call. Let me quickly go to Zan. Got 15 seconds, Zan. What do you think about this? Uh, um, I disagree with you about the Humboldt driver. Okay. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I disagree with you about the Humboldt driver. He's totally responsible. He might as well have shot him with a gun. Because uh, by law, you're only allowed to work a certain amount of hours, and he lied about that. And the safety of the truck was compromised. Zan, I look. Zan, I got to run. I got to run, but I do agree with you. I'm not saying the Humboldt driver is innocent or should be getting off. He should be paying a price for this. Absolutely. All I'm saying is the other guy as well should also someone who just doesn't have an accident but drives like a maniac should not. It shouldn't just be the result that determines your criminal activity. Appreciate the call, though. Thank you for it. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.